Welcome to the Mentors Care Podcast. I'm Summer Backstrom, along with my co-host, Mentors Care founder, Dina Petty, and we love to talk to each other and to the amazing people that make up the Mentors Care family. What is Mentors Care? It's a nonprofit organization that matches adult mentors with students considered at risk of not graduating. The vision of Mentors Care is simple. One volunteer gives one hour, one time a week to mentor one student. It's a proven formula with incredible and life-changing results. The conversations you'll hear are designed to educate and inspire others to join the Mentors Care movement. Now, enough of this standard open, Let's get to the good stuff on this episode of the Mentors Care Podcast. Welcome back. And we have Leslie Dean with us today from the Ellis County Children's Advocacy Center. And I would like to also say hello to my co-host and our fearless leader, Dina Petty. How's it going, Dina? Hey, it's going great. Good to see you again, Summer. It's really cool to have Leslie in the house because she recently hosted a trauma workshop for Mentors Care. And Dina, how long have you known Leslie? When did, what made you think of inviting Leslie? Wow, I can't even really remember, Leslie. Do you recall? First of all, it's great to see you. Thank you for being here. <laughs> yeah, I, I am glad to be here. Uh, let's see, when did we meet? I think the first time I met you was at a United Way meeting when I very started, very beginning of my time at the Ellis County Children's Advocacy Center. I'd never heard of Mentors Care yet, and it was great to hear the really cool things y'all had going on. Well, and what a great coalition we have with United Way, with all of the agencies. Uh, what they do is once a quarter we come together and we have meetings that actually help nonprofits. It brings information to us about how to empower nonprofits, how to do business as a nonprofit, because most of us who are in nonprofit world, we're the dreamers. You know, we're the ones that are emotionally led and we go get work done. But then all of a sudden you go, oh my goodness, you mean I have a budget? I have a board? What is this? You know, so United Way does a really good job of bringing us all together and informing us. But also what I think is the best thing. It brings all of us together to meet one another, get to know one another. And all of us become friends. And then we're constantly referring back and forth to one another, the agencies that we each serve and how we can serve one another. And that's when I first met you. I remember that now because I was thinking, what a great resource for Mentors Care. I was wondering how long you've known each other because I, I don't know when she had time to interact with anyone because looking at her bio, right? my goodness, this lady, Leslie, you've been busy. You've been very busy. So you began, okay, so you're a Waxahachie native and you basically started out at New Horizons, is that correct? Residential Treatment Center? Yeah, that was my first job as a little baby residential treatment center direct care staff. That's, I started working with emotionally disturbed children back in 1997. What city was that? Uh, Goldthwaite, Texas. Goldthwaite, Texas. Okay. Mm-hmm. Central Texas, close to Brownwood. Gotcha. Okay. You've had several positions in the past or, or in the 11 years that you spent with New Horizons, including group leader, case manager, child and advocacy center, oh, child and family advocacy and Universal Child Abuse Prevention Specialist. You have so many credentials in your your bio. I'm just going to let you kind of tell us how you got started and what led you to be to where you are today as the Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center. Okay, so the New Horizons Ranch and Center was originally a residential treatment center for emotionally disturbed children, and then they actually branched out to having multiple programs within that same agency. So I had the opportunity. It was nonprofit. So over all the 20-some-odd years, I've been 
been in working in the child welfare field, it's always been with nonprofits. And so at New Horizons, I was able to work direct care staff with kids. I learned a lot about behaviors and forming relationships with children. And then I was able to become a case manager at the RTC. And then from there, went to work at the STAR program, which is was a different program inside of New Horizons. The STAR program is services to at-risk youth. And you, you can find those programs in every county across the state of Texas. Our job was to go in and, and work with families before Child Protective Services got involved. We would get referrals from the community, from parents themselves, and our job was to work with at-risk youth. We were there to prevent kids from running away, prevent truancy, but it could be anything that the family was going through. I moved back home in 2008, and my husband and my children and I decided to sell our house in the housing market crash of <laughs> <Aww>. 2008. <laughs> and and let me just tell you, nobody was buying anything in Gulfway, Texas in 2008. <laughs> well, until I saw the big short movie, it looks like nobody knew that was coming, except for a couple of people in Wall Street. Gosh. I know, but to be those people. Anyway, so <laughs> we, we sold everything and moved back uh, where I grew up in Waxahachie. And in that, I found a World for Children, which was another nonprofit uh, child placing agency. There, I got to recruit and train foster families and then became a licensed administrator. And over another 10 or 11 years work, I mean, I, I had a, I was a regional director and I could oversee as many as 200 kids at one time. I had the opportunity to study, to go to the TBRI classes through a world for children and uh, learn even more about trauma. Which is trust-based relational intervention. Yes. Thank you, Dina. We are social workers, a world of acronyms, so <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. We speak this weird language. Dr. Purvis has been a trailblazer in the past on working with children that come from hard places. And so a lot of the work that we had been doing, she was able to help us really understand even more so what we can do to help children. Which I want to interject. That's, and I want you to continue talking about how you got to where you are, but you having that knowledge from all of these places, has been, it is just a deep pool of information that Mentors Care has been gleaning from you. And, oh. you know, like what Summer was talking about, our resilience training for our mentors, we're still hearing people discuss what they learned during that training. You brought so much information to us wow. from that. But it's from all of these experiences. And, and then that's when you wound up where you are now with the Ellis County Children's Advocacy Center. What was your next step? Yeah, I had the opportunity to come work in my hometown, my home county. And it's been a very fun experience for me. I feel like I've been able to take all the things that I've learned over years of time and the people that I've come into contact with, mentors that I've had, clinical mentors, direct care people that work directly with kids, tours in those areas. I'm, my nerdiness comes out because I love, I hate to say this, I love research. I love numbers. And I know. That's that, not a normal social worker person. You're kind of an oxymoron, aren't you? I am. <laughs> I'm a social worker with an MBA, so that's kind of weird, you know? Yeah, I, yeah, I don't so, get it. <laughs> but they don't teach you anything about budgets in social work school, no, you know? No, so they don't. That was real important to be an executive director, and and I learned as a regional director that I really needed to, in order to serve others, you've got to know how to make, you know, got to know how to pay the bills. You got to know how to create a structure that a vehicle from which you can serve others. And that's what I've seen that 
that you brought to Ellis County Children's Advocacy Center when I toured it with you that day. You were bringing a lot of new ideas and thoughts into that building, and the place it is now is just incredible. Can you tell everybody a little bit of some of the things that you've done to create that safe space for these kids? And also, kind of what is the day in the life of the Children's Advocacy Center? You know, what happens there? Hmm. Okay, so that's a good question. I know, so that was me, too big. Let me Sorry. Break it no, it's okay. Yeah, I'm gonna we have can break it this. down. <laughs> I kind of want to answer the, fir- the yeah. second question first. Okay, yeah, yeah. What's a typical day look like? Atypical, that's what it looks like because every day is different. That's one thing I love about my job is that we have new challenges on a daily basis. And boy, the, the time where we are right now with, I mean, I don't want to time stamp this podcast, but really we're in quarantine city right now. You know, we are um, having to figure out how to serve others in really different ways right now. Everything is, is different on a daily basis. And as the executive director, I tend to have my hands in just about everything. <laughs> we have several programs in our agency. We have, most people know about forensic interviews. Forensic interviews are a part of our, the main thing that we do to aid in the fight against child abuse, which is to provide a legally sound way to talk to children in a way that is child-friendly. And that's where you've helped us and also a lot of school districts in Ellis County, where you trained all of us to understand the importance of the protocol that has to be put in place with these children when there is an outcry, how to handle it correctly. Because on your end, before they do meet with a judge and have to go to court, you want a solid case, right? And you want to make sure it's done We right. do. We Yeah, we want to make sure that justice is served. We want to provide justice for the children. And to me, there's nothing worse than a child pulling together the courage to tell their story. And then the people that should be here to protect them and serve them don't do their job correctly or, you know, we don't do that right. And so they're not able to get justice because we haven't done something correctly for them. And people, you know, aren't held accountable because of technicalities or because we didn't do something right. It is important for us to be able to to do that well and for me to be able to get that message out to our community about how to do that because most people want to help. Most people want to help and they just don't know how. And they make a lot of mistakes in that because they have a big heart, they're very compassionate and sometimes they're saying too much or they're leading too much. Or Yeah, and the thing is, you know, I worked in the field for a very, very long time before I came to the Children's Advocacy Center and I didn't realize that someone that was a mandatory reporter, what was important for me to gather I didn't understand it. I thought that the people on the other end would want to know all of the information, all the details, all of the things, and that I could glean that from the child and then share that so that they would have the best information. And that is just not how it works because we have to follow some very specific guidelines on forensic interviews and what's admissible in court. It makes it to where the advocacy center wants to be the one that gathers all that detailed information. And with our mentors, they're going to hear some pretty heavy stories sometimes. And so we have to we have to be that first reporter, first responder. Wait, what is that term? Sorry. Well, they're mandatory reporters, mandatory but I would reporter. also. Yes. Yeah, but I would also say they're teachers, mentors, yeah. people that are in front of kids all the time and seeing kids. Those are our, our first responders. You are the first responders to child abuse. 
Yeah. So yeah, use that name, first responder, it, because it, it really it really defines whenever that happens what you are. Well, you taught us a lot. We use that information in our mentors care training with our our mentors every year to make sure they understand now that they are those mandatory reporters. It is a it's rare. I mean, you're going to see it in every school every year, sometimes more than others. But just being prepared. Just what do you do? I think that's one of the biggest things that we do with mentors care is we ask the mentors just to be a friend. You're not going to be the social worker. You're not going to be the first responder that's going to run to their house. We don't want you to do that. We want you to be the friend, this trusted friend. You want We want you to build that emotional safety place for them to where they, they can be themselves and they can share. So out of those conversations, sometimes you find out some pretty tough stuff. So thank goodness we have people like you that we can go to and say, help. What do we do for this child? Yeah, it's good to have a framework so that when those situations happen, our people that are working with kids on a daily basis have a very found, good foundation on what they can pull from. Because it can, when when a child is expressing to you that they've been abused in some way, I can tell you, I have a story of whenever I was little, I broke my arm. And, you know, of course, it was in the 80s. So my, my mom was taking a nap. I mean, I, I didn't get to take naps as a parent. So I don't know where that came from. But in the 80s, moms took naps. And that's usually when the kids got in lots of trouble. And I broke my arm. And it was one of those real ugly breaks. looked like a chicken leg, you know. It was just kind of hanging there. And so I come to the door, and and she opens the door. And had she responded in the way that I probably would respond (laughs) if I saw my kid's arm looking like that, I would have had a different response. But because she she kind of, you know, looked at me, and and out of her nap duper, she was like, okay, Leslie, let's just go put a splint on there. We're going to go back to the hospital. Everything's going to be just fine. So I call it my nurse voice, because she just (laughs) She just glazed over and everything she went into was that mode. fine. Nurse, nurse <laughs> voice? Did. You call it your nurse voice, Lisa? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> definitely a nurse voice because... <laughs> Remain yeah, calm. Mm-hmm. Remain calm at all costs. It, it, it can be repaired, you know. So mom, she just took ownership of it. She knew what to do and she responded. And that's how we have to do for our kids. We have to be strong enough because their stories can be pretty dang scary to us. So we have to be strong enough and just know the basics of what we need to do so that we can channel that child to the right authorities to get them help. You know, I remember whenever with the resilience training you shared, I thought something that was so powerful. I could tell it really resonated with a lot of people. The difference in definition of what success means for different people and how we can't put what we say is successful on a student, what we think it is. Can you explain that? It was so good. Well, okay. And I don't remember exactly what I said there. So I'm just going to say what I think (laughs) right this second. (laughs) But uh, success, I mean, the world does a great job job of defining that for us, doesn't it? The world tells us what success means, what it looks like, what we should want. And it doesn't do a great job of making people happy because people have these expectations of what things are supposed to be like um, and how we're supposed to live. And so I really think it affects our happiness overall as humans. But I have a sign in my office and it says success is rented, not bought. And the rent is due every day. So success seems to be a real moving target for me anyway. I have felt some success and as soon as I feel that success, I know, okay, we've done that. Now it's time to move on to the next challenge. So maybe success is conquering the challenges that are in front of us. Maybe for each one of us, we have different challenges along the way. So success for me may look real different than your successes. So 
some of those are what the world tells us that are important to be successful. Like, yes, we all want to have a high school diploma because we all know that that is a measure that the world is going to measure you up against. So we want our kids to be able to have a high school diploma because that's kind of the, the, the basic thing. And so when you think about the challenges that are put before them, they think becoming at a much greater deficit than the next kid. So for them to achieve even the smallest levels of success could be a huge feat where another kid is coming from a place where they're not having to overcome all of those deficits. Their successes may look real different for them. And so students that have had trauma, severe trauma, what we define as success for them, that's really not fair because where they're coming from, maybe just coming to school every day is a big deal. Maybe that's a huge success. And you did such a great job of teaching us about trauma and what these students are dealing with and what it does to the brain. Can you share a little bit of some of the things that can happen to a student that has had severe trauma and how it might affect them when you're trying to put them in a regular setting like a school setting or trying to function in regular society? What What is that like? What does that look like? Okay, so some kids can be affected by trauma in so many ways. It can be different for every person. But it's, I like to think about it this way. Everyone's response to trauma is a physiological one. It's our body's way of dealing with abnormal or extraordinary circumstances. And our brains take this information in and our brains respond to it in a way that's designed to keep us safe. But more times than not, this is our emotional brain that is in control at that time because that is the part of the brain that is meant to keep us safe, to detect danger and then respond to danger in a way that keeps our bodies safe. So this is our midbrain. And unfortunately, when we're in a traumatic situation or I will say even perceived trauma, a perceived traumatic situation or a perceived dangerous situation, kids that have been traumatized many, many times before are going to go back to that emotional response more quickly. It's unfortunate that we can't, you know, anytime that we're traumatized, we can't have access to that prefrontal cortex that involves logic and reason and vocabulary. Right. I mean, how many times are we in an argument and you're like, bidi, 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 because you can't think because you're much more emotional. Uh, your emotional brain has taken over, has hijacked your body, and you're speaking out of emotion. So that's a bummer, <laughs> right? I know. And so that's what our educators can see in classes sometimes. They'll see these students that way overreact to a situation and they're going, whoa, what is happening here? Right. And they're not in their emotional brain. So they're talking to the kids with logic and reason and they don't understand why, why this child is not able to come back down to logic and reason. So children who have experienced like chronic traumatic stress, They have responses that are similar to war veterans or people that have suffered post-traumatic stress disorder. They can have flashbacks. They can have nightmares. They can have night terrors. They can have an emotional response that doesn't fit the circumstances sometimes because of perceived danger. So they have just a, they have a different set of lenses that they're looking through and experiencing the world than a person who has not had complex And people are really surprised when they come in our office and they see that we have the weighted blankets. It's just amazing how it can calm 
a student who was very angry. You put that weighted blanket on them and it's the sensory making them feel hugged or safe. And then we have widgets, you know, when they're really nervous or anxious and we're trying to talk to them and they have to do something with their hands. It's amazing, just those few little tools. But these are the kids we're dealing with a lot of times. Not all of our students in mentors care are dealing with severe trauma, but we do have several at each of the schools and it's really nice to have those tools and the understanding of how the brain works and why a student is acting out this way. So do you think there's any way you would know a child is abused by just meeting them? Is there any signs that you can see? Hmm. I say yes and no. I've seen kids that have had behaviors that are outside of of normal range of behaviors um, that have not been necessarily abused. But I've also seen some kids that have been horrifically abused who had very mild responses. That's my point. That's exactly my (laughs) point. You can't judge just by meeting somebody or assuming anything. But if they do outcry, don't we have to believe them? Well, I think it's important to believe them whether or not it's exactly the truth. For some kids, it's their perception of what happened. They truly believe that that's exactly what they think happened, happened. And you think about it, your recollection of things that happened to you when you were four and five years old or six or seven, do you always have it correct? Good point. I think this is funny. You know, it was na- like National Siblings Day the other day. Of course, I have a big brother who was my my hero. I love my brother. He totally believes in mentoring kids. And I enjoyed meeting him. Didn't he do his, his doctorate was on mentoring, wasn't it? Yeah, it is. I have it somewhere. I've been reading up on it. I need to read it. It's really thick. Oh, anyway, some good light reading, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I do need to read it, though. So with our mentors, you know, we have the training and we talk about those issues. If you hear about abuse or neglect or they're going to harm themselves or someone else or, you know, someone's going to harm them or whatever, they know what to do. But I know a lot of people are going to be listening that are not mentors, but they're concerned citizens. And if they should hear something, if they hear something like this, what would you tell them to do? I would tell them to call the hotline. There's a child abuse hotline. It's been the same number for the last million years. Yeah, tell us what it is. (laughs) Do you have it? Okay. Uh, I'm going to do it from memory. Okay. So y'all have to strike it, reverse it, whatever, (laughs) if I don't have it right. But it's 1-800-252-5400. Okay. Thank you. I think people are going to really want to know that. So what do you see as the benefit of having mentors in high school? I know you you see all ages which I guess you see all ages, don't you? But Or is it mainly younger children? We, we can serve zero to 18-year-olds. And we've even had some adults that have come in that developmentally, they're, they're developmentally they may be on a much younger level. So, but mostly we, we see kids in a forensic interview that are verbal up to 18 years old. So you've said in your past that you had dealt with mentoring and saw the benefits of it. So what do you see the benefits of mentoring like Mentors Care, you know, that we're in the six high schools and what do you see that's valuable about it? Well, I think it's an opportunity to build a relationship. One of the things that I spoke about when, when I came to do the conference was building resilient in kids is about building a relationship with them. The relationship is often, it's the best from which we can talk to kids and really have a better insight into what's going on with them. You know, a lot of times kids that are coming from hard places, they're not allowing themselves to dream or to think about what's in their future because they are in the today here. You know, what am I doing today? What are we going to eat tonight? Or what am I doing tonight? They're not allowing themselves to even dream. A mentor, a volunteer is someone that is choosing to spend their time and and not getting, you know, what they're getting in return has no monetary value. 
And what that tells a kid is that they're worth it. If somebody cares about them outside of their little circle of what they have to do. Very true. I hear it all the time from kids. They're just amazed somebody's doing this for free. Really? They're not paid to do this? You got to be kidding me. Because in their realm of influence, they're, everybody's doing something for gain. You know, they can't imagine somebody doing something just to be nice. What a lesson that is in humanity. Mm-hmm. And so if we can share that with people, they may extend that same humanity to others. That gift seems small because we have really big lofty goals for kids and we want them to be, quote, successful. We have some benchmarks for that and all that. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't go for those things because we have to have expectations. I, t- I always say, you know, kids will, kids will give you exactly what you expect. But I also think that there's also another layer of that is just about being the human condition. Yeah. Well, as a person who's paid to do what they do, Leslie, I know you do it because you have such a big heart. You really love what you do. You can tell. You can tell when somebody loves what they do and they're doing what they're supposed to do. It's a calling. You can tell by looking at Leslie's background. She loves loves helping children. You devoted your life to it. And I think would it be accurate to say that the takeaways today are to listen, to listen to children. You know, I've seen some testimonials before, you know, of, of children that they tried to tell someone, but it wasn't received. And so they quit forever. Like they never talked about it ever again until they were grown. And probably another takeaway is the hotline. I want to repeat that number for our listeners. It's 800 800- Two five two five four zero zero. Well, we can't thank you enough for coming on the show and for visiting with us. And we are really honored to be partners with the Advocacy Center. And we're really proud of what you guys do. Again, we can't thank you enough for coming to the show and for giving us your insights today. Thank you so much for coming, Leslie. You are wonderful. Thank you for having me. It was an honor and a pleasure. Well, thank you all for listening again. We're so glad you came back to our podcast. Be sure to like and subscribe and follow us on social media. And if you want to learn more about the mentoring program, please visit www.mentors.care. We'll see you next time.